are in Galatians, as I said earlier. Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to be going through verses 21 through 31. So Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Good morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Galatians 4, as you've heard read this morning. Um, I'm going to pray again for us one more time, for myself especially, because it's been uh, an interesting week and a very challenging time to actually put together a message. And so I need some help from the Holy Spirit, as I do every week, but especially today. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us and teach us from this amazing passage of Scripture this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again. Thank you that we can, we can cry out to you and we can say, it is well, it is well with our souls. Father, we are so grateful for those of us who get to call you Father, our Dad, the one who loved us so much that sent his only Son into this world to die for us, to purchase our salvation for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being with us to empower us, to encourage us, to comfort us. We pray that you would do that this morning in an amazing way. Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me the strength, but also the the hearers, the listeners, the ability to hear from you, not from me, but from you. And so, Lord, we ask for your blessings, and we pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So it was uh, Christmas 2001. Uh, In the Davies household in Langley, British Columbia, Janice learned very early on in our marriage that um, I had a bit of a retail business background and I had this thing, this idea that the Christmas tree needed to be merchandised, right? So we had this pattern. We had three boys at the time. All three boys were living at home still at this time in 2001. And uh, the pattern for me was, you know, we'd, we'd put all the boxed gifts would be underneath the tree on Christmas Eve. And then when the kids went to bed, dad would come out with the, the one big gift, you know, the one big thing that some people think comes from that guy in a red suit. We really never promoted that, but that one big gift, and, and I would merchandise it, right? So we had three boys, so over on this side would be Jonathan, and whatever his gift was, it would be opened. The box, of course, would remain there, because the box was important. It's part of merchandising. And, and the actual gift, the thing inside the box would be on top of it. And, you know, I had to name, I had to put little cards there, Jonathan, and then in the middle was Matthew, and then over here was Andrew. So that was the pattern. And I just want to establish this this morning. 
that's a very important thing to do for Christmas, just in case you've not been doing it. You should probably think about it. So the, the idea was they'd come out on Christmas morning, and there it was, you know, ta-da! And of course, I have the video camera going, and it was awesome. I thought so anyway. Janice was, you know, just didn't understand it at all. This particular Christmas, I had a new idea, a different idea. And so when the kids came out on Christmas morning, uh, all they saw in front of the box gifts was an envelope with their name on it. So Jonathan, Matthew, and Andrew's cards. And they opened up these letters. They came out, they were a little bit like, what's going on here? This is what, you know, and the, the video shows it. They're kind of like, Dad, <laughs> what's going on here? And so they opened the letters, and it, and it led them to a scavenger hunt or a treasure hunt of some kind. And they had to put together from their three letters that, that uh, they were to go to this next place to find the next clue. It was so funny to watch, right? Because they're going, you know, like, Jonathan, I don't know, he's like, he's like four or five years old, you know, and, and Matt and Andrew in their teens, and, you know, they're going, what is going on here? And they, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of, you know, getting along and, and trying to figure the clues out. And, of course, I'm being generous when I say that. You know, there's a, there's a little bit of bickering and stuff. So finally they go to the next clue, and they open it up, and they, and they, get, they get another clue, and they got to go upstairs and into somebody's bedroom, in the closet, and find the next clue. Anyway, long story short, they end up finding the second to last clue, and it says, basically it tells them that they've got to go outside, they find it, they figure it out, to the mailbox across the street in their pajamas in December in our cul-de-sac. So they get the mail key, they run out, they go across, they open the mailbox door, and they get the last key. And it's so funny, i got the camera rolling now, I'm outside, and they're like, what's going on here? You know, it's starting to rain. And, and uh, all of a sudden they figure out, the garage, right? So they run over, pull up the garage door, First words I hear out of Andrew's mouth are, oh, snap. Because merchandised inside the garage is a brand new 50-inch television surround sound multimedia center. I'm awesome, aren't I? <laughs> it was so good. It was great. Uh, Jonathan, being like five years old age, he, he kind of looks around for a second and he looks at me and we had this old like 21-inch you know, tube television, which was the biggest we ever had, I think. And he goes, can I have the old TV for scrap? Never really understood what that meant. But here's the deal. I, I, I share that story with you because there were two perspectives on that day, right? There was the perspective of the kids, the boys, which was, you know, like, well, this is exciting, kind of. Dad's weird, but this is exciting. And, you know, we've got to figure it out. And, and they were trying to figure out the clues. And, and they were going from one to the next. And they were feeling pretty proud of themselves. You know, occasionally, Janice and I had to step in and give them a bit, you know, well, reread that clue a little bit again. And they figured it out and so forth. But there was the other perspective. Jan's perspective. My perspective. You see, we knew where the clues led. We were the ones who bought the gift. We were the ones who provided it. I mostly was the one who displayed it inside the garage. But we knew what the treasure was and where it was, and we were hoping through the various clues that they would find the treasure. I want you to hold on to that thought as we go through this passage today because this is one of these passages where you know, preachers are like, oh my, how do I make this interesting? Because it's, it's like we're going to go to Bible college or seminary for a, a, about an hour, no, about half an hour, and, and, and to understand what's going on here in this passage. But I want you to be encouraged by this. Think of it this way. This is the amazing thing, I think, that we see from this passage. I hope you will see. Our God has laid out amazing clues all along the way to who he is and what he has done. 
They're amazing. They're perfect. They're real. And they're historical. So your outline for today's message is three things. Number one, the history. Number two, the allegory. And number three, the personal and practical. As part of an introduction, let's look at the first verse where Paul says this right off the top. It's kind of like it like throws this out there. Of course, it has to do with this passage today, but it also is a fold over from the end of uh, the, the last passage that we were in last week. And he says this, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So once again, what he's doing is he's returning, of course, to the main problem that's been going on in this letter from the beginning, why he's writing this letter to those back in Galatia. And that is because these false teachers have come down from Jerusalem and they are trying to lead his young church plants, these young disciples in Galatia, away from the true gospel. And this is really concerning to Paul. They want to take these, these Gentile believers who've just placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, believed in him, and been saved, and they want to bring them back under the practices of the law. Basically, they're saying, listen, it's not enough, guys, to simply believe in Jesus to be saved. You, of course, know that you need to play a part. Right? You need to do something in order that your salvation will be assured and that God will approve and accept of you. You need to contribute in some way. So I want to show you graphically, because we want to keep repeating this once in a while so that we, we get this throughout this letter. Paul keeps doing it, so it's important for us, I think, to do it. Let me show you graphically what this might be looking like. They were saying, these Judaizers, these false teachers, were saying something like this. Believe in Jesus and obey the law to be saved. You see where that equal sign is? <laughs> That's what they're saying. Believe in Jesus, yeah, no question, but obey the law too in order to be saved. But the gospel that Paul was preaching says this. Believe in Jesus, be saved, and then obey the law. Notice the change of position of the equal sign? It's important. Another way of looking at it might be to say it this way. Belief plus obedience equals salvation, the Judaizers would say. And instead, Paul and the gospel would say, belief equals salvation and the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit to be obedient. And so in verse 21, then, Paul asks this, and I'm sure they would have read it this way, this rhetorical but also sarcastic question, isn't it? I mean, it's like, really? Right? He's basically saying this, so you want to be under the law, do you? Now, he's not just saying this to the, to the Judaizers who are going to read this letter, when it gets there, but also to the Gentiles who've been now starting to listen to these guys a little bit. Do you have any idea what the law really says is his tone? Because if you did, if you actually did know what it says, Paul's suggesting, you would realize that the law itself tells you not to be under the law. That's what it actually teaches. And so he says, tell me, tell me, come on. Give it your best shot. It's, it's sarcastic. It's a bit of a, a challenge that he's throwing out to them. It's like, defend yourselves if you can. I think he's hoping that when they get this letter, some of the Gentile Galatians are going to go, yeah, 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 tell me. <laughs> Better explain yourself a little bit because Paul seems to disagree with you. And so I think he's trying to build up uh, those young Galatians in their faith and strengthen them. So one thing that might help us understand this idea of under the law, I know that 
as Christians, oftentimes as we hear this, and sometimes you may have it, heard it preached this way, and it, it's true to a certain extent, you may get the idea that it's all about, uh, it means that we're under its rule, right? Uh, that the, under its oppression or under its pressure and its burden. Well, yeah, that's what you would be doing if you place yourself back under. But, but another word for under, which is really a word that you should, I think, replace more often in your own mind and thinking anyway, is the word rely. Because this is the whole point of the gospel. If if you're relying on the works of the law for your salvation, you're not going to get there. So it's all about relying and relying on the law and the commandments and therefore earning your salvation. And to that, Paul asks, have you honestly heard what the law says? Have you considered what a foolish, stupid idea that is? So let's look at our point number one, the history. Let's dive into that. Verses 22 and 23 say this. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So there's lots of pairs that we're going to look at today. It's really interesting how God has lined this up and these pairs, these, these dual tensions that are in this passage, but also throughout the history of the Jewish people and, quite frankly, the gospel. So he starts off with Abraham had two sons. Um, Most of you know the story back in Genesis. It begins in chapter 12 of Genesis, the story of Abraham, Abram at the time, and Sarai, and they're called out of the land of the Chaldeans. They're they're called, basically, God says, look, start walking. (laughs) Just start walking and follow me. And and Abram does. He leaves with Sarah, and, and off they go. And God calls them to, to out of their homeland to a place that he would show them. And while they're on this journey, on the way to the place that God is calling them to, God starts making promises to Abraham. He promises them that I will make you a great nation. Look up to the stars. Look at the sand. You won't be able to number the people that are going to come out of you. But all this while, Abram's like 80 years old. And Sarah is about 70, and they're moving up in age as they're going along. And they're like, well, my wife is barren. She's not able to bear children. We've been trying, trust me, and it's just not happening. So they're old, and God makes this promise to them. Well, they keep following God on this journey, but Sarah gets more and more discouraged. And you can imagine being given a promise as a woman that you're going to have children, and you haven't been able to. And you can sympathize with her a little bit that after 10 years, which is how much longer it is, that she finally gets to this point in Genesis 16 where she says this to her husband. She says, behold now, like it's been a while, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's interesting how she put that, isn't it? The Lord has prevented. Actually, it's true, but it sounds a bit like an accusation. So she says, listen, go into my servant, my servant, my handmaiden. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, being the manly man that he is, listens to the voice of Sarai. Well, Sarah's handmaiden name, of course, you know, is Hagar. She's an Egyptian slave. And she gives son, uh, birth to a son who's named Ishmael. Abram and Sarah thought at that point they had done God a favor, didn't they? 
They thought they, they helped God out. I mean, their, their conversation must have been, well, look, you're, you know, she's pregnant. Um, obviously, that worked. And this, this must be God's will for our lives and what's going on. So, you know, cheers us. We, we did the right thing. Well, they, they find out that actually God had promised Abram a son through his wife, Sarah. And one thing that we should know and that they should have known is that when God makes promises, he keeps them. <laughs> he keeps them. Well, many years later, when Ishmael is now growing up, in chapter 21, we read this. The Lord visited Sarah. As he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. The Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. At the time of which God had spoken. Interesting, isn't it? So God had foreseen this, prophesied this, and there was a time, there would be also a time of waiting, which they weren't really into. Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So despite Abram now being 99 years old, get this, right? He's 99, Sarah's 90. God made the impossible happen. It's impossible. They've been trying, but seriously, human biology, I mean, just think about it, 99, I mean, Sarah's probably thinking that he might not even be able to play his role in this, right, his part in this. God worked miraculously in this, and it was Abraham's seed. He's his son, her son. It's remarkable. So let's consider this. Look at this. We've got two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Both of these sons are biologically sons of Abraham. They were both circumcised, we read in the scripture, in the story. Both grew up in their father's house. So they're both his sons. But that's actually where the similarities between the two boys ends. It ends there. They didn't have, in that culture and in that day, and in God's eyes, quite frankly, as we will see, they did not have the same legal rights according to the law. Despite having the same father... There were two mothers involved, and in the eyes of the law then, they had two different, quote, legal standings. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we went through this whole sonship thing, this heir thing, this sonship thing, and I know some of you, especially the ladies, are like, this masculine language thing is getting a little overbearing, you know, like, where where are we in this? Ladies, ladies, today's good news. (laughs) It's really good news. Two mothers are involved, and in the eyes of the law then, They have two different legal standings. The mother of Ishmael is a slave. Hagar is a slave. Therefore, he is born into slavery. He's a slave, legally. The mother of Isaac, of course, on the other hand, is the son who was born free. Why? Because Sarah is a free woman. She is the woman of promise, as we will see. So again, back to our main verse here, uh, another key that we see in, in 4.23 is that God the Holy Spirit has judged these two births. Now, I'm saying this because Paul's writing these words, yes, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so I want to suggest that it's actually the Holy Spirit that is making the judgment here in these words, and that is that these two births are very different. Ishmael was born how? According to the flesh. Paul repeats this in verse 29. And and so from this, we need to see and learn two things. First, 
Ishmael was born the natural way. He was born according to the flesh. And second, he was born, look at this, by the will of Abram and Sarah. They took matter into their own hands, the matters into their own hands. They were the one who decided this is what we're going to do to help God out, to make things happen according to what we know he wants to happen anyway. It's his will, but it was actually their will that was at play here. So Isaac, on the other hand, was born in a completely different and miraculous way. It says he was born through the promise, or as we will see in verse 29, according to the Spirit. Ishmael and Isaac may have the same father, but it is their mothers who determine their inheritance. Isaac's birth alone was the result of God's promise and of his supernatural action in the life of two people whose bodies were, let's face it, sexually dead. Dead. And he brought life. In other parts of the story, we read that Sarah and Abraham, doubting God, would fulfill their promise. At one point, Sarah even laughs, right, at the prospect of getting pregnant. And well, we know why, because of their age and so forth. So now see this. God planned this all along. I mean, think about this, honestly. Again, God's like, oh, they did this thing with Hagar. Now, how am I going to fix this? Like, how, you know, because it's not, no, no. Please see this. These two mothers and these two sons are important to the story of God. They're important. And Paul's going to expound that for us in a beautiful way today. It's amazing. So there's obviously more going on here than meets the human eye. I mean, you can, we can read the scripture. We can read this passage today, 21 to 31. I have read it, go through it, and go, oh, that was interesting. Let's get on to something, you know, it's like more practical, apparently. There's so much beauty going on here in God's word. It's incredible. There are actually numerous clues I want to suggest to you in this story for us to see today. First, when Abraham and Sarah decide to help God out, they're simply doing what you and I as human beings would do. That's the picture that God wants to see from this, I think. We don't wait for God to show us what he wants to do or what his will is. We don't wait. Oh, oh, we say we do. We pray for God's will. Dear Lord, please open the door so I can do this or I can have this or I can go here or go there. And then we wait for 48 hours. And then we start Googling and figuring out our own plans. Come on. Anybody? Anybody got the T-shirt? No, you're all really spiritual. I guess I'm the only one with that problem here. I think we, we just don't wait. We take matters into our own hands, and you know what we do? We say it's God's will, especially if it works out for our good, right? Because it's God's will. Because Look, it's good, isn't it? Don't you think it's good? Secondly, and I think this is Paul's point to those who would rather put themselves back under the law, there are these clear differences that we need to see between these two boys. Isaac is a gift from God. He's the child to the woman who's been praying for years for a child who can't bear a child of her own. It's a miracle. He's a gift. He's a gift. And that's how I'm sure Ishmael, on the other hand, is man's effort. One born by human will, the other by promise. One via works, the other by faith. One son was a slave, the other was free. And so the key here is this. Ishmael and Isaac then represent two entirely different approaches to religion, don't they? This is what we've been in in this whole letter. It's it's law versus grace, right? Flesh versus the spirit. Self-will versus God's will. 
It's the gospel. It's this whole letter. It's what it's all about. So that's number one. That's the history. This is what actually happened. Bible class 101 has ended. But it's interesting. Now he's going to go into point number two, which is allegory. Really? Okay, that should be really interesting. There might be some C.S. Lewis in this. Verses 24 to 26 say this. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, says Paul. (laughs) These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children from slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Those, Those are real places, right? Those are real places that exist. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, another real place. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. I was thinking uh, last night as I was trying to finish this, I should probably have saved this for next Sunday, Mother's Day. We'll see what that, how that works out next week. So this is interesting. Paul, no doubt here, through the Holy Spirit, has just laid out the historical background for us of the story so that he can make his point. But, but now he, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, to interpret this story allegorically. It's, it's got to be, you know, it's almost like he's arrived at some kind of, you know, epiphany, I think, as he looks at this. And so he wants to look at the allegory. The Galatians, and I think most Greco-Romans in that day, would have been very much used to this. When, when they heard him say this, they wouldn't be like, allegory, what's that? No. In fact, rhetoric, right? Um, uh, allegory and metaphors were often used to bring out deeper and deeper meanings, specifically and importantly, spiritual meanings in a story. And in this way, Paul reveals a few more clues for them to hold on to as they're trying to find their way back to the true gospel. He's trying again, let's remember who he's writing this to, what he's trying to encourage them to do, come back to Jesus. (laughs) Don't go putting yourself back under the law. And so biblical allegory is basically this. It's a narrative or story, listen, with real people, real places, and events that take place, all pointing to spiritual truths. More modern authors, most of you know some of the best uh, allegories that have been written over the past century, per se. I mean, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is a classic, right? I mean, even the characters' names are pointing to the allegory in the story, right? J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings... Classic, amazing, C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Here's the difference. Those are all fictions. Fictional stories that are allegories that point to a deeper truth and meaning. And so now as I was thinking about this and realizing that, listen, it's the Holy Spirit is the one revealing this truth to Paul. And I'm wondering, at this point, if he didn't feel inspired to write this allegorical interpretation because it's literally like, Wait a second. Because, listen, this wasn't taught in, in, in the Torah. This wasn't taught in Jewish uh, rabbinical circles. This idea of what Paul is now going to see allegorically, it's like he's all of a sudden going, oh, oh wait a second. I got another picture that I want to show you to prove to you that it's by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that you are saved and not by works of the law. So what Paul says here is this. These women are two covenants. But look at the clues. There's so much more here. Look, there are two mothers, right? Two sons, and there are two covenants. Do you see any other pair? There are two Jerusalems, right? 
And we can spend a lot of time here and get bogged down, and I know you want to go for lunch, so let me try to get through this. The two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, along with their two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, represent, this is teaching us, two covenants. Now, what would they be? Well, clearly, there, there again is this covenant of works versus the covenant of grace. The contrast is there. Hagar stands for the old covenant, which God gave through Mount Sinai, right? Moses on Mount Sinai. The old covenant contained all the rules and regs that God's people had to keep in order to receive God's approval and God's acceptance. It stated the thou shalts and thou shalt nots of the Ten Commandments, right? It was based on a principle of works, and keeping it was kind of a form of slavery, wasn't it? Isn't it? It is. It was based on this principle of works. And Paul had already explained that in Galatians 3.23 when he said, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So another way to see this allegory then about Hagar and Ishmael is that the Old Testament represents slavery to the law, which they both were slaves, Hagar and her son Ishmael. And that means then that all of her, his heirs, this allegory would suggest then, would be slaves as well. And therefore, anyone who is an heir of Hagar would be in bondage and a slave to a works-based righteousness or religion, to legalism and to the law. Anyone like the false teachers in Galatia who wanted the Christian, to make Christianity into a Jesus plus works-based salvation or religion were really just Slaves like Ishmael. No, okay, come on. The letter arrives in Galatia, and the Judaizers hear this read. This is punishing. <laughs> this has got to be convicting. Hopefully it's going to convict their hearts. But I don't think they would have loved reading this letter at all. So this is awesome so far, right? You still with me? Everybody still here? Nobody's left? That's good. Okay, let me, again, there are two mothers, there are two sons, there are two covenants, and there are to Jerusalem's. So just for a moment, listen, listen, think about this. Please think about this. It's marvelous. Real history. Real. Like this happened. Not just in Christian writings, but you know, in, in non-Christian and secular writings in the day. Real events. Real people. And now we're talking about a real, or not quite yet real, city. These two Jerusalem's. All of them arranged by our Heavenly Father to fulfill exactly and masterfully the plan that he has for us. I don't know, but at, at the end of this, when you think about it, when you think about what's been pictured, do you see the clues? <laughs> do, do you see, I mean, it's like, do you see the treasure hunt going on here? Do you, can you see where this is pointing to the treasure that he's taking us to and the pictures that are there? So remember, at the time, these two mothers and the births of these two sons, Jerusalem, the city, did not exist. It didn't exist at that time. And of course, the ultimate son, which Isaac is a picture of, Jesus, had not walked into the city of Jerusalem yet either. So now for the false teachers and those in Galatia, hearing these words would have been incredibly shocking. I mean, basically, Paul's saying that their beloved, listen, and, and hallowed great city uh, uh, of, of the great religion that they are following and practicing to this day, by the way, is allegorically Hagar. 
I mean, th- that's, that's saying that, guys, spiritually speaking, you're not Jews if this is the way you're believing and trusting. You're Ishmaelites. Oh, my. Now, again, if you knew Jewish people in that day, or even today, to this day, but in that day, that would be like, that's heresy. What are you getting at? Well, that's exactly what the allegory presents. That's what it presents. So to the Jewish false teachers, and anyone for that matter, who believes, listen, that their family line, their race, or their religion can save them, this is a rude awakening. It's the truth. And it's good news. So again, let's recap before we move on. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is the free woman, right? And therefore, the son born to her, born of promise, was Isaac, and he was also free. So then Sarah represents the new covenant, a covenant of promise, not of the law. In this covenant, it is God saying, I will. I will. Not your will, not thou shalt. I will. I will do this. I will redeem you from your sins, and I will freely give you my grace in eternal life in my son. So the new covenant is the gospel, which gives salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So then we have these two cities. The current Jerusalem, physical on earth in this day, allegorically, is being marked as man's effort at attaining his own righteousness through works-based religion. This real Jerusalem, the scripture teaches us, is destined to what? If you go further in your Bibles, what is it going to tell you? It's destined for destruction. It's going away. Because Jesus is already preparing today, already preparing this new Jerusalem, which is our true home today and future home as well. He ends with these beautiful words, I think, ladies. He really does. When he says, but the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. This Jerusalem allegorically but truly represents us, the family of God the church. And listen, she is a she. We are a she. We are the bride of Christ. One day, going to meet her husband. Point number three, Paul ends with this, uh, the personal and the practical, for he says in verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. There's a whole sermon here. I can't take the time on this, but this is Paul quoting Isaiah 54.1. And although it's not directly about Sarah and Hagar, uh, the relationship is clear. Isaiah is lamenting the days where the people of Israel have been taken captive in exile, into exile into Babylon, and, and Jerusalem is barren. The city of Jerusalem at this point in time is barren. Her children have been taken away into captivity, into slavery and exile. His, his prophecy is actually quite complex, but simply put, he likens the Jerusalem of the exiles as to the, one who, the barren one whose husband has been taken away. The promise then is this, that one day, 
a new Jerusalem will appear, and its children will outnumber the children of the old Jerusalem. That's us. That's the church. And to the Galilean uh, Gentile believers, I think this would have encouraged them greatly. Because again, the false teachers were saying, guys, to be true Christians, you've got to become Jewish first. God loves the Jewish people. Let's be clear here. God also loves the lineage of the people of Ishmael too. Jesus died for everyone on the cross, amen? Everyone is welcome to be part of this new family and this new Jerusalem. You're not stuck in it because of your lineage, but it points to religion. It does. He concludes with these three verses saying this, appealing to his brothers and sisters in Galatia. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, you're children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? What do we do? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I don't have time to unpack this really deeply for you, but a couple things, just a couple of personal and practical things that we need to see from this because it's important. First and foremost, Jesus warned of this. I'm going to show you a verse by Paul that warns of this, but Christian, Christian, you have to expect, we have to expect, as sons and daughters of the promise, we will be persecuted. We will be. I remember early on in the life of our church in small group in our sunroom in our home where I was preaching on something like this and, and someone actually asked me the question, are you suggesting we should go out looking for persecution? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't tell you how I answered that. I think the point is, friends, and you know from the story, do you know from the story what happened here? As Isaac grew to approximately about six or seven years of age and his brother Ishmael was like 16 or 17 or maybe a little bit older, how did Ishmael treat his younger brother, Isaac? Horribly. He persecuted him. He treated him very badly. That's one thing that we need to expect. Paul does says this, say this in 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Our lives as Christians, if we are living obedient lives, obedient to the commands of Christ and the Scripture, are going to be so countercultural, and we're actually going to be not only modeling it and living it, but speaking it into this world today, people will hate you. If your life is going really, really well, Christian, and you're not getting any opposition whatsoever, maybe you should be concerned. Maybe we should be concerned when it's just going great. Everything's falling into place. Everybody loves me. It's perfect. No opposition. No will. Maybe we should be concerned. There's one other thing here that we see from this, this whole idea of casting out the slave. Paul is saying figuratively and directly to the Galatians back in Galatia, yeah, these false teachers, cast them out. Friends, today in the church, 
in North America. There are deceivers, as Paul says here, deceiving and being deceived, imposters, just like in that day, false teachers coming into the church saying, Jesus is great. And what Paul said is sometimes okay, but not always. I mean, we need to reinterpret that in light of culture in the world we're in today. Cast them out. Stop reading them. Come back to the true gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? Let's pray.